Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Chris Ryan. This will be the first episode uh, that I'm uh, sending out to you from our new apartment in Portland, Oregon, where it is partly sunny after raining for the first month that we've been here. It seems like spring is in the air, flowers, everything's a bloom, and it's beautiful. So we're feeling pretty good about Portland so far. Uh, this episode was recorded a couple months ago at this conference I went to in Puebla, Mexico. It was It's called the Ciudad de las Ideas, City of Ideas, for those of you who don't speak even a little bit of Spanish. Um, and it was... <laughs> It was a strange conference. Interesting. It's like the Mexican version of TED. So where uh, TED is hyper-professional and, um, as some of you will know, sort of got on my nerves because of the uh, the micromanagement and, you know, looking over my shoulder and making me take out slides the day before uh, the, you know, the thing started and all this kind of hyper-vigilant attitude toward things. Ciudad de las Ideas is sort of the other extreme. It's the Latin version of TED where nobody really knows quite what's going on and it's kind of chaotic and charming and frustrating and fun. And, uh, (laughs) you know, whereas at TED, I I felt um, claustrophobic because of how much micromanagement was going on at Ciudad de las Ideas, it was chaos. They flew all these big-time people down there. I mean, Richard Dawkins was there, Deepak Chopra. But for the little thing that I was on, which was going to be like a debate of four against four, uh, and it was like we were broken up into teams, whether or not monogamy was natural or, no i know what it, it was monogamy is natural versus polygamy is natural and i was like uh sorry i don't think either one of those are natural i'm you know i'm arguing for the promiscuous team here and there was no promiscuous team so they just threw me on with the polygamy is natural folks um and i don't even know that they actually aligned with that viewpoint the other people on my quote team um but it was all just a very strange thing. And it was sort of like our session was supposed to be like a boxing theme. So we came out, there was a big, there were ropes up and there was, it was strange. And the whole thing was so chaotic that I think the, the MC, the guy who organized it after a few minutes realized that it was just too chaotic and strange. So he cut it short. So they flew people like Robert Sapolsky, Helen Fisher, David Buss. I mean, these are big, big, people uh far far bigger than i am in the in their respective fields flew them down to mexico probably paid them a lot more than they paid me and you know they were on stage for three minutes something like that it was kind of crazy and then there was the big event was this uh debate between deepak chopra and richard dawkins which uh i think i tweeted at the time was like you know the clash of the the world's biggest charlatan versus the world's biggest asshole it, it was just like bitterness against obliviousness strange strange thing to see those two arguing over 
I don't even know what the hell they were arguing over. It, it was supposed to be some sort of like new age spirituality versus, uh, you know, rational atheism, I guess. But they were both so overdone and, and they both overstated their position so severely, in my opinion, that neither one of them really made much sense. But in any case, that was the, where I recorded this podcast with a guy named Pere Estupiña, who is Catalan from Barcelona. He's a very interesting cat. He's a, um, he's a scientist, trained as a scientist, but he is working as a science journalist, a communicator. He wrote a book uh, that is, I think, trans. the English title is The Brain Snatcher, I think. And it's based on interviews that uh, he did with scientists all over the world. And so we had a pretty interesting conversation. There's a little background noise you'll hear because we recorded in the hotel bar and there were people running around and screaming and, you know, announcements being made and so on. So I hope that's not too distracting for you. Um, I haven't listened to the conversation uh, since we recorded it. I was just listening now, preparing for the podcast and uh yeah i'm pretty pretty happy it it's it was as interesting as i recalled so that's cool uh this episode is brought to you by squarespace yes squarespace my code by the way if you decide to go for a squarespace um sign up my code word is now sex s-e-x a lot easier to remember than the other one um hard to forget in fact Anyway, Squarespace, check them out, squarespace.com. It's um, really easy to set up a website there. They've got great customer service. It's template-based. They're always adding to their templates. Every time I, I go to the to their site, I see these new, slick, beautiful templates. So if you want to have a very professional-looking website that you control, all right, so you can change the content, you can switch things around at will, you don't have to pay someone to do it or wait for someone who's, you know, busy to get around to it. You control it super easy and uh, super slick. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I think they've got it. They've pretty much worked this thing out. It's it's very reasonably priced. I think it's nine or 10 bucks a month. And if you use my code, discount code sex, S-E-X, I think you get 10% off that. And then if you do a one-year thing instead of paying monthly you know you you just put it on your card or whatever for a year uh you get another 10 percent off so it ends up being really cheap and they also throw in the cost of uh, reserving a url if you don't already have your your website address so hard to beat squarespace check them out this uh, episode is also brought to you by sure design t-shirts as always suredesigntshirts.com the discount code there is sex at dawn, one word, sex at dawn, D-A-W-N, like the book. Um, you know, I can't say enough about Sure Design t-shirts. I, I yammer on about them every episode. You've heard me talk about them before, how soft they are, how wonderful they are, how beautifully designed they are, and how cool Bennett is, the guy who owns it. Um, I've got a massive order in. Uh, there's a big festival going on in Thailand right now, so there's going to be a bit of a delay getting the shirts in, but I'll have them in within a month or so, uh, sometime in May probably. Um, but in the meantime, we still have the Sex of Dawn shirts. We've got the Tangentially Speaking shirts and hoodies. Um, so if you don't have one yet and you want one, go to chrisryanphd.com, which will also show you a short design, I mean a Squarespace uh, website because I use uh, – Squarespace myself. 
and uh, get yourself a T-shirt. Go to the store. You'll see a tab. It says store. And there's also the archives of all the podcasts there. And if you're interested in the uh, the, the episodes I've been doing with uh, Joe Rogan and Duncan Trussell, you can find the – there will see a tab there that says – I think it says Tri-Podcast, the Tri-Podcast. So that's just a temporary name until we figure out what we're going to call that uh, continuing series. Uh, I guess that's it. I don't know if there's anything else I need to say here. I did want to uh, just call out to a few people who've who've written to me recently. Ryan Gilbert, have a good trip, brother. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I get some emails, folks. Uh, I really do. This, this guy, Ryan Gilbert, is... Young dude, twenty years old. He decided he want he wants to go to Alaska, and uh, and then go to to Asia. And so he's leaving Virginia any day now on his bike. That's right, on his bicycle, I believe. Bike, not a motorcycle. Bicycle. So he's leaving the East Coast, Virginia, and headed for Alaska. He's going to ride his bike, take trains, take buses, whatever. So and then uh, hopefully make some money in Alaska and then head off to Asia. Have a good time. <laughs> it's it's pretty fucking ballsy. Good for you, man. Uh thank you Alexander Shamber for your donation. Much appreciated. Uh all the way from Recklingshausen, Germany. Recklingshausen, Germany. Okay. Uh fantastic. Thank you. Uh not only for the donation but for reminding me that there are people in Germany who are listening to me right now. I I find it just well, it's just amazing. Um Anyway, the uh, I also got an email from someone blaming me for the fact that she, I, I think blaming me for the fact that she's getting an abortion. I don't know. I mean, I get bizarre emails, and 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 that one I'm not even sure that's a real person. I think that might be some just crazy person who decided to try to make me feel bad by writing an email as if it were a woman who, blaming me for her abortion, um, because my book apparently um, made her have unprotected sex. I, I mean, I, I just get I get bizarre emails. So. Uh, you know, the non-evil ones, the ones that aren't designed to try to ruin my day, I really appreciate. Uh, yeah. There's uh, also wanted to thank uh, Mar- Marcelo. Very, very cool, um, you know, to, to write and share what you did. Um, some of the emails we get are very, very uh, personal and beautiful. And so I can't really get into the details, but I did want to take a moment to say thank you. Cody Thomas, you're headed off to Nepal. Very cool. Very cool. I love Nepal. I spent a couple months in Pokhara. You know, it's one of those experiences where something that looks like a bad thing turns out to be a good thing. As soon as I got to Nepal, I was in Kathmandu. First night I was in Kathmandu, I was staying at this guest house. And I decided to go upstairs on the roof of the guest house and watch the sunset. I was barefoot. I went up barefoot and I there was a an edge on one of the stairs and I sliced my foot really badly. I mean, like practically down to the bone and, uh, on the ball of my foot. And, um, I, you know, cleaned it up right away, but I was bleeding all over the place and it was a bad cut. The kind of cut that isn't, 
you know, I probably should have gotten stitches, but I don't know. I was in Nepal. I didn't want to go to a hospital. And, you know, if it had gotten infected or something, I would have. But I cleaned it up and, and taped it and uh, stayed off my foot for a few days till it uh, fused a little bit. But I definitely was not going to be able to go trekking as I had been planning um, because, you know, you head off into the mountains in Nepal. If you get a really bad infection or something that um, interferes with your ability to walk, you're pretty much fucked because you know i mean short of them sending out helicopters and stuff but it's it's there aren't a lot of places to land helicopters because it's so mountainous um and even so what's that going to cost you know and so if you you don't want to go trekking in nepal if you're not in pretty good shape and the last thing you want is uh you know foot problems so it kept me from the mountains, and instead I spent a couple of months in a place called Pokhara, and man, it was fantastic. I love that place, and I met some really interesting people and had some great experiences. So, And at the time, I just thought, well, this just means I have to come back to Nepal someday. So I'm still waiting. At some point, I hope to. Um, Maybe after I finish this book, that'll be a good motivator. Cassie and I can go trekking in Nepal for a while. And last but certainly not least, I wanted to shout out to uh, Nathan West. Uh, best of luck to you, brother. Um, very, very cool. A guy wrote um, from Australia. He uh, he just sort of talked about how uh, these podcasts, mine, Joe's, Duncan's, and uh, Daniele's, and that that whole sort of uh, incestuous circle of podcasters has uh, helped him focus a little bit on what he wants to do and uh sounds like he's he's off to uh, an amazing start he's on his way to oxford or cambridge he's been accepted to both he's going to do a degree in social anthropology this is after he's traveled all over the world done all sorts of work uh, had lots of adventures so very cool and uh, very happy for you nathan Okay, without further ado, let's get into this uh, conversation with Pere Estupigné. Sorry, that's that's a tough, tough, uh, tough pronunciation. Um, you can find more about him at his site, uh, which is just his name in and then dot com. I'll spell it for you: P E R E E S T U P I N Y A. Pere Estupigné. I said Estupigné. No, it's Estupigné. Um, dot com, and you'll find out all about his book, and there, it's in English as well. It's part in Spanish, part in English, so you can check him out in either language. All right, thanks again for listening, and thanks as always to the great Carsey Blanton for the theme song. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton dot com. The song is Smoke Alarm. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say All right, uh Hello from Puebla, Mexico. I'm sitting here with Peri Estupiña, correcto? Correcto. Okay, muy bien. Uh, yeah, we've, um, if you follow me on Instagram or Twitter or anything, you've probably seen some of the photos that I've posted. 
uh, from uh, Puebla. It's uh, an amazing conference here. It's called Ciudad de, La Ciudad de las Ideas. Uh, Richard Dawkins, Deepak Chopra, Robert Sapolsky, Helen Fisher, David Buss, who are yeah. all evolutionary experts. Uh, who uh, are, a lot of art, a lot of music, a lot, a lot of, of integration mu- between great musicians. And different arts. It's yeah, and, and Apollo Robbins, ama- yeah. illusionists, and uh, amazing stuff going on here. So it's sort of like a TED thing. Um, but a lot uh, looser and kind of more with a Latin flavor. More Latin American, yeah. <laughs> Teodoro. In, in the good sense. Yeah, in a very good sense, actually, yeah. So anyway, uh, I met Pere here. He's uh, f- originally from, from Barcelona, Barcelona, right? Spain. Yeah, yeah, Catalan. Good Catalan name, Pere. Yes, yeah. like Peter, but in Catalan. Yeah, and uh, but uh, wow, interesting life. You've published yeah. two books now? In- yeah. And you, what do you call yourself? Are you a scientific journalist or? As a, yeah, a science journalist. Uh, my background is in biochemistry, but I right. started working in a TV program in Spain, a quite famous TV program there, Redes. And then I moved to the U.S. because I got this fellowship at MIT called Night Science Journalism Fellowship. And I worked at NIH for a couple of years, but then I wrote this first book called El Ladrón de Cerebros. It's like the thief of brains. Right. As a science journalist, you end up meeting very interesting people. And what you are doing is to stealing their ideas somehow in order to share with the people so that's why I'm called the brain thief no? <laughs> and it went very well and it was fun that you don't take kidneys too do you uh, no you know no, one of those guys I leave me in a bathtub with brain ice brain is the most interesting <laughs> organ in the body <laughs> well, I, I can lose people, mine I don't, yeah, some people think that there are others <laughs> very interesting too but no and it's fun because while I was writing this book in, a, in the Society for Neuroscience conference, I met this girl who was presenting a poster called Clitoral Stimulation in Rats Induces Force Activity in the Brain. And I went and I approached her and I said, she was a researcher from Concordia University in Montreal. I said, uh, do you stimulate the clitoris of the rats? Showing my badge as a science journalist. Uh, she said, uh, yes, I do. Uh, how do you do that? So, with a brush. Uh, and she started explaining me that she, 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 that, she did that, like, two short repetitions, then the stops, two other repetitions, because that's the way how rats copulate. I'm like, wow, that's fun. And she said, no, it's not, it's fun, but it's also very interesting, because again, different hormones, you know, animals only want to copulate when they are ovulating. And what's the root of sexual desire? So in giving different rats different sets of hormones to see when they are excited and where they are not. So I'm studying the key hormones related to sexual desire. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And I had never written about this, being a biochemist. And I ended up going to her lab. And there is when I decided to write this book, S equal AX square, like sex square, about different fields of science in the intersection between science and sex. Yeah. It's cool. You you showed a video of that in your presentation yeah, here, which yeah. was a fantastic presentation, by the way. And there was a video of of the woman with uh, like what what is it like a paintbrush, but for for very fine painting, exactly stimulate. And it reminded me of the way um, males, at least male primates. I'm not sure what they do with rats, but the way males are induced to ejaculate when they want to study uh-huh. the ejaculate. You know how they do that? No. 
It's not it's not a beautiful little paintbrush on your clitoris, I'll tell you. It's a, an, an electrical ah, yeah. anal probe. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I, I, I knew that, but I thought it was similar to the brush. I said, no, the, <laughs> the electroejaculation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They stick a thing up your ass and, like, zap you, and it makes you ejaculate. Well, thanks oh. a lot. I'll go for the paintbrush. Well, in fact, with people with spinal cord injuries, uh-huh. they do it like this also. They don't really? have any sensitivity. In oh, the, so it doesn't the hurt then. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. They, they need to be careful because possible lesions and everything. But if they want to collect uh, semen with people with spinal cord injuries, depending of the... It's very interesting, people with spinal cord injury, because depending of where you have the lesion, you have different nerves that are right. involved. You have the pudental nerve or the pelvic nerve, the hypogastric. Or say, if it's a very high uh, lesion, so the, all the circuit between the p- pelvic and the hypogastric is... is there is no information from the brain reaching there, but it's autonomically working. You can induce an erection, even an ejaculation, and feeling the orgasm in the other part of the body. The reactions of... And it's not pleasure for for them. It's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's really interesting. It's like an irritation? So you you can induce... You Mm -hmm. have the erection. So... The nerves are working. The, right. the pudental nerve is receiving the information. The pelvic is sending the right. information. It's just not connecting to the brain. It's, it's almost like an independent circuit somehow. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the, the holes, the, 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 the muscles, the, I mean, the rest of the body is working. The intestines and the, right. also the sexual function. Yeah, that's and a good point. if yeah. the hypogastric nerves uh, reaches the point to activate the sympathetic nervous system and having the orgasm... Um, they suddenly feel the, the 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 effects of the sympathetic nervous system activation. That's like uh, the heart rate speeding, the blood pressure, and the the hormones that are. And suddenly feel something. And I interview for my book. Uh, right, the, uh, uh, guys who Kim, uh, Kim was his name. Uh, Kim uh, Kiko. 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 But yeah. he had a very low back uh, injury, uh, oh, okay. so he was. He was for him. It was impossible to reach orgasm. Yeah. He could have erections with the Viagra and have sex, and no sensitivity at all. But uh, because that's very interesting, um, the sexual desire is still there. He's a young man. Yeah. It's like I feel attracted to a woman. I want to of have. Of course, uh, he's a good-looking guy. Yeah, he, different he kinds of, of sex. Yeah. No, but going back to that, I've also interviewed this. Medical doctors who are helping them with their sexuality, and they explain. I remember one in Canada. She explained me that it was the first time that she helped a guy in 27 years old, or something like that, to have an orgasm, and it, he didn't like it at the beginning. So it's it's interesting because at the end, conventional sexuality as the one that we normally have. Of course, it's fun, it's interesting, but when you talk to people with spinal cord injury, people that are asexual, uh, people that are I- hypersexual, uh, people who have different orientations, different... Somehow you feel, oh, you'll always learn something. For example, with the people with spinal cord injury, the non-genital sexuality is very interesting. I always... At least myself, we've been very always very focused on the genitals. Yeah. For, and now it's like, wow, exploring... What happens if you shut down the genitals and you have sex without... Trying not to involve as much as usual the genitals. It's very interesting. Have you ever seen a film called Coming Home? No. Uh, it, it's, I think, late 70s, early 80s, starring Jane Fonda and John Voight uh, and um, Dern. I can't, Bruce Dern. 
pretty big stars. It it, it was uh-huh. one. Of, it came out around the same time as uh, Apocalypse Now and The Deer Hunter. There was a sort of a, a group of Vietnam movies that came out um, ten years after the war ended. Right. It took ten years before anybody could get a movie made yeah. about Vietnam. But this this film coming home is amazing. Uh, Jane Fonda plays the wife of Bruce Dern, who is a, a pilot, a, a Air Force decorated, you know, pilot. And but he's an asshole, right? Yeah. And she's living on base back in San Diego or wherever, and she's you know got lots of money and goes to the country club and has all the other wives as friends, and she's a superficial kind of woman. And then she decides she wants to volunteer. Somehow she gets roped into volunteering, working with veterans who are coming back from the war. And she meets a guy who's paralyzed from the waist down, played by John Voight. And they fall in love. Yeah. And there is a scene where they make love together for the first time. Oh, wow. That is so fucking moving. It is so beautiful. Exactly. And it, it really illustrates some of what you're saying that... You know that making love isn't uh, isn't about the body. It's about spirits and minds and hearts yeah. and things. And we use the body to connect, but just because that's the easy way to do it. And mm-hmm. sometimes we we get focused on the body and we forget why we're actually there. Yeah. You know. And um, anyway, that scene is just amazing because you can the way they they depicted it. You can see how vulnerable he is. Hmm. You know, that's the first time he's been with a woman since he was practically destroyed and how sexy his vulnerability is for her and then he gives her orgasms that she never had with her husband oh wow right who's completely physically healthy but he's a dick he's cut off he's he's separated from his own you know anyway i don't want to go it's it's not a podcast about movies but it's a great movie coming home You, you said something on stage the other day that was very brave and and I really appreciate it. You said a lot of things that were brave. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things you, you said when Andres was talking to you about a rather confusing question involving handcuffs and, you know, yeah. rapes and all that, you pointed out that men can, uh, as we're saying, the, the body reacts independently of the brain often, and particularly in terms of sexuality. And you pointed out that, of course, men can have orgasm, uh, can have erections when they're terrified when yes. they're, they're not uh the idea that a man can't be raped is based on the idea that a man if a man has an erection then he's into it that's not true men can have erections all the time when they're not into it ask any 15 year old boy walking exactly. around with his books in front of his dick as i did you know through school <laughs> but it also happens with women that women who are being raped they um don't necessarily have vaginal tears because they they may lubricate and they yep. may even have orgasms yep. that doesn't mean they're into it yeah I've never heard anyone say that on stage before. I've certainly read the research, and I know yeah. it's true, but I, I applaud you for saying that. Well, in fact, and, and I interviewed Roy Levine. You know, Roy Levine is this researcher in the UK uh, who's a sex researcher in the physiology, and he's been in, in some trials saying, uh, because when there is these rape cases, the defender of the... Um, of, of the of the rapist say hey she she had an orgasm that means that means something and he's always saying no that doesn't need 
doesn't mean necessarily anything. Yeah. Uh, because, the, again, under very stressful conditions, physically also, uh, the sympathetic nervous system can be activated suddenly. And it happens even w when, when Debbie Herbenik does this... Uh, studies on uh, exercise and orgasm you are doing a lot of exercise and suddenly wow, you have an orgasm <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. at the end there are some muscles that we can't control all our bodies there are many non-genital orgasms but particularly for women particularly for women yeah, yeah i've yeah. never had an orgasm at the gym if i did i would be so in shape hey the, uh, yesterday uh, a guy came to me and said, hey, can I ask you something? Uh, once, uh, I was rushing to the classroom because I was very late and I was rushing a lot and I felt something like, like an orgasm, a guy, a man. Uh, I was like 16 or 17 and I was very shocked. I had never talked to anyone. Uh, so, and, and I interviewed also Debbie Herbenik from Kinsey Institute uh, that published this with women, uh, orgasms, non-genital orgasms with women having exercise. And she said, after publishing that paper, I start receiving emails from many emails from women saying it happened to me, but also from men uh, saying, hey, it has happened to me. Uh, with ejaculation? It was ejaculation. Oh, there was one guy at the Indiana University, she told me, that how he called when you do these uh, gyms, the sit-ups, the sit-ups, uh, he was at the athletic uh, team, and he did always the sit-ups at home because sometimes he ejaculated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's fascinating, the reactions of, yeah. the, of the body. Yeah, yeah, the body can get away from us. I mean, the whole, the whole rape thing is so complicated, uh, you know, so complicated. I mean, the fact that the rape hmm. fantasies are exactly. so prevalent among women, and, and I... I, I yeah, I'm not an expert in this. It's not an area I've I've studied in any great depth. But it seems to me that in I have a friend. I think I mentioned him to you the other night, uh, Jose Carlos Busso, who did um, his doctoral work in Madrid using MDMA uh, as a, uh, using MDMA to help uh, women in psychotherapy dealing with sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it's such a complicated um, therapeutic situation. The MD MDMA helped them relax and form a, a bond with the therapist and, um, you know, reduce the anxiety levels that are associated with remembering and reliving the experience and all that. And he got amazing results. It was really oh, very wow. helpful. You know, MDMA, is, as I'm sure you know, is very helpful in, in treating any sort of trauma. Yes. Um, the, the Israeli military is uh, doing a lot of research using it to treat PTSD in soldiers. It's being used all over. And finally, the, the U.S. government and other governments are starting to allow uh, legitimate research, uh, oh. which it's a disaster. It's been 30 years and it's been shut down. But anyway, um, my point is that the the psychological trauma for uh, a woman who's experienced that who does happen to have an orgasm and mm -hmm. has some uh, physiological pleasure associated with having been abused that just makes it so complicated because yes. it triggers guilt it triggers shame it tr makes her think maybe I was asking for it I did fantasize about it before it makes it really difficult and complicated hmm. yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel very badly for people I know who get into those situations, whether women or, or therapists or whatever. Yeah. No, there is a Spanish sexologist who read my book. Maybe we saw it published in Spain. And she's had 
she, she had some patients who have been raped and a few of them had orgasms and she immediately said when she read my books like oh I'm gonna tell them about this because it's a matter of saying hey it's a reaction of involuntary reaction of your body it's nothing to do with your mind forget your mind your mind is not active that is why it's allowing the body to react this way no? or even if it does have something to do with the mind and yeah, well, you're yeah. talking about fantasies and all that that doesn't mean you've given consent Ah, okay. You know, yeah. so I mean, it, it, that's what I mean. It's such a nuanced, difficult hmm. uh, thing to talk about or think about. Anyway, okay, so you were at uh, MIT and then uh, the NIH, National Institute yeah. of Health. Uh, those are like the six uh, most powerful letters in the scientific oh, com- community. Yeah, I was very lucky, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> lucky and, and, and smart. You did your homework. Yeah. Well, so in your, your training's in, in, in biochemistry, yeah, okay, yeah, and that yeah. was in Barcelona? Yes, yes. I started, in fact, I studied chemistry. I finished the degree, then biochemistry, and I started doing bio, my PhD in molecular biology. But I, did the, I, I, I didn't want to work in the lab. So I did my master's in molecular biology, and I started working as a science journalist because I like science so much. It's right. so interesting that doing PCRs of the polymorphisms of alcohol deshydrogenase, yeah. that, that was the, the, my topic. Science the almost forces you to be boring. Uh, yes. Because of the specialization Probably required. when you are a good guy in science, you are able to, you are exposed to many different kinds of research, but PhDs and postdocs yeah. are boring. And they have so much pressure. My, the lab where I start working, it was not a b- good lab, but they didn't know at the beginning because you're young and you don't know what, to, especially in Spain. In the U.S., you, you, you know much better how to drive your career. Mm. But in Spain, is a mess. And I start working in a small lab and I said, am I, am I going to spend here four or five years doing a PhD that I don't know what's going to happen with that? I'm not going to have great results. So I moved out from the research, but I wanted to stay connected with science, and that's why I did it. Uh, are you publishing uh, in English? The book? Yeah, or, or articles? Anything? Uh, no, the work that I'm still working for the MIT in something called Night Science Journalism Tracker. That's kind of analysis on science journalism that they do for the whole US and UK and Europe, and I do the Latin American side. I uh, do it in Spanish, but there is a short abstract in, in English. Uh, no, you know, but I can speak English in my accent and with my mistakes, but writing journalistically, you need very good skills and language. I'm not mm. able to write. Uh, maybe in the future, if someone edits me, I can do something. It will depend if the book is finally translated into English or not. Right. Working with yeah. editors, and maybe, maybe it will. I don't know. Yeah, when well, it's sold very well in Spain. In right? Spain and Latin America, especially. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, for example, in the, in the U.S., you have books about science and sex. Your book, uh, Science of Orgasm. Lots Comisar, of stuff there, coming there, out. There, there yeah. are some. Uh, chemistry Between Us, that's regional. What Women Want just there came out, Bergner. In Latin America and Spain, known Hispan- Hispanic author has ever published a book like the one I did. Hmm. When I thought about the idea of publishing a book, immediately you go to the, talk to your editor and say, hey, it's, it's something similar. No. Nobody has published a book about, a serious book about science and sexuality for, in Latin America and Spain. I thought, wow, that's a very powerful. Do you think that's religious, uh, there's a conflict No, you there, have or? a lot, uh, you, you, in, in the US you have a long tradition of science writing. Uh, uh, okay. And you have, there are many more science writers in the US than the whole Latin America and Spain together. Uh, many, 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 many okay. more. Uh, so, 
No, I don't think it's because conservative, because in fact, U.S. is very conservative also with the research. I was working at the NIH. I, talk, I interviewed Thomas Insel, director of the sure. National Institute of Mental Health, and I asked him, Joe, you do all the kind of research related to the mental health, yeah. Do you, understand, do you, do you study pedophilia? Ah, uh, no. Ah, you don't study, you don't, you don't, so you don't fund uh, research on pedophilia. This is a mental health problem, isn't it? Mm. Uh, well, as I said, Richard Holtz, the National Institute of Aging Director. So he said, you, you do research on all the function of the body, how they age, uh, also sexual function. Uh, well, not so much. <laughs> hey, yeah. what's going on here? Well, you know what that is. That's Congress. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Because all they're afraid that someone's going to go as, at Congress and say, "Well, why are we spending money, you know, as researching pedophiles? That would yeah. just put them in prison, you know?" And they're very vulnerable that yeah. way. It's, it's. You're right. The American scientific community, the scientists themselves, hmm. are not very conservative generally no, politically. Exactly. exactly. But the funding mechanisms yeah. are are completely at the mercy of a bunch of fucking uh-huh. idiots. I mean, the the head of the scientific the subcommittee on science in Congress is uh, some guy who thinks the Earth is five thousand years old and di- humans rode dinosaurs. Wow! Literally, wow! I don't remember his name right now, but That's... he's a fucking idiot, when, and he's in charge of funding. Yeah, when yeah. I heard these things, being European, yeah. when I heard these things, I can't, I can't believe them. When when they were telling me telling me about the rates of creationists, yeah. in the, it's like, nah. I mean, you're lying to me. That's that can't a possibly fake, that, be. It's a fake poll. That's the country that put someone on the moon. Yeah, you can't. They can't. It's not be. possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and well. then you, you ask two people, say, yes, hey, it's like that. I went to the for my first book. I went to the Museum of Creationism in Kentucky. <laughs> what was I that? Wrote, like? I wrote the story there. Oh, fascinating! Because there's a whole like creation Disneyland somewhere. I don't know if it's in the same place, but they've got like dinosaurs. Yes, yes, like, yes. Is that the same place? Yes, yes, yes. They okay. have dinosaurs and, and men together because you know, uh, for them, death appear the seventh day. With their when when women, I, when men and women arrive to the earth, they create um, the scene, and then there was death. Before that, there was no death. So how could the dinosaurs be extinct before death arrived? That's the reason. That's the argument that they give to say like that species death or individual death. Like nothing died. Nothing died. You, they have they have teeth of sharks that say these teeth prove that the first sharks was were vegetarian. <laughs> because the animals, they didn't. Eh, eh, it's there. It's there. There is the question. Sharks. Eh, that's one argument. The, the oh first sharks were vegetarian, uh-huh. and they have some teeth that prove that because they can't kill other animals to eat before the arrival of the um, of death of death. And right. you know another funny argument that they have is about the the. Um, the, the Grand Canyon, no? Yeah. Uh, the Grand Canyon, they say it's only 5,000 years or 4,000 years, the, the flood. Uh, I said, look, if you, if you check these isotopes of zirconium, you say 100 million years. But if you check other isotopes from other materials, it's 200 million years. And others is 50 million years. That's not consistent. The Bible is consistent because there is only one data. <laughs> Five thousand. That's the argument that they give. Well, it's, it's another topic, but I was so shocked to see a museum like that and people lining up lining up big fat people i'll bet a lot of them no no yeah. no i i felt that they was the the weird guy no. there <laughs> you, you were yeah yeah well i mean it's i i don't want to get bogged down too much in politics because i can get really depressed and, and depress all our listeners but i mean 
one of the things that really scares me is that there that isn't just an isolated group of of idiots those people a lot of them believe that the second coming of jesus will happen when there's the this outbreak of war in the middle east wow and there there are large parts of the religious right that are very supportive of israel not because they they have any supportive feeling toward judaism only because they want Israel to have the weapons necessary to provoke this war, the Armageddon, that will bring back Jesus and you know solve everybody's problems and bring the, the good people up and leave the rest of us here to burn. So, so it not only ties into geopolitics in a very dangerous way, but it also ties into environmentalism. Because they say, well, why should we worry about global warming? Why, who cares about what's happening, you know, overfishing the oceans yeah. and blah, 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 and, you know... Because we're all this. This is all over in a few years, so the wow. slate's going to be wiped clean. So that completely undermines and negates any argument for preserving the earth, taking care of things. Because their feeling is, you know, this is all. This movie's over in in a couple more scenes. So don't worry about it. This long term problem. <laughs> There is no long term. There is no long term. Wow. Right. Right. It's it's a it's a very strange end time sort of. Um, psychosis that the that's happening in the united states it's it's very strange but anyway you know i guess all the the decline of all empires is accompanied by lots of very strange psychological phenomena like that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, i don't know about this but yeah but um yeah well my the people who listen to this podcast have heard me talk many times about this book i'm supposedly working on now called ah, civilized okay. to death so ah, i'm sort perfect, of in that perfect. mindset yeah yeah, yeah yeah i'm talking about it instead of working on it <laughs> you know yeah, what that's yeah, like yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. all right is writing <laughs> do i have enough information yeah you have plenty of yeah, information too much start information. writing come yeah, on man <laughs> yeah it's funny i mean we were talking the other day about writing our process yeah. and all that and i mean the thing that that people who don't write for a living don't understand at least books I and mean, journalism's different journalism yeah. you, you got to do it you do it and it's done you move on to the next thing exactly. but but with books you're you know uh, william butler yeats the irish poet said um, a poem is never finished only abandoned oh that's that's so true you know what i mean yeah. and so when you're writing a book or you're making a film or something big like that it's never done it's no. never the way it's never as good as it could be So there's a there's some psychological process where you just have yeah. to say you know fuck it this is it I, I got to do something else no, now that, you that's know? why it's do important it. to have deadlines also I mean, it is important to have deadlines these yeah. stories of people that no I'm writing this book for 15 years because it's a very personal book and everything yeah it's happy but if you have an editor that tells you uh, several months in advance so the book so we are if we want to publish it for San Jordi in Spain needs to be finished like this, needs to be finished like that, and it's already in the in the program of the next year, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So it depends on many. It, it, <laughs> there is a lot yeah. of so yeah. Well, I recently I recently had a, a lunch meeting with my editor in New York. I don't know if I told you this the other yeah. day, and uh, he's he's a wonderful guy. He edited Sex at Dawn as well, so uh -huh. I've worked with him before. Um, But I've I've already extended the deadline twice on this book, and he's we're having lunch, and he I started explaining, you know, well we're moving, and yeah, my father's been ill, and all this stuff, and he he just put up his hands. He said, Chris, Chris, he said a lot of writers need me to pretend I care about this. 
I know you don't need me to. So just write it when you can, and it'll be yeah, great. I you have know? a lot of things to publish. Don't worry. <laughs> exactly. It's like yeah. nobody's nobody's asking me about yeah. it. You know, it's only in the last month when they when they tell you, eh. We need to start working the yeah, promotion yeah, and everything right. under the catalog We're doing and everything. The, the index so, and the cover. Yeah, yes. yeah. You, you tell me now if you're going to ha- have it or not because I will start doing all the machinery right. and the catalogs. And well, the, and you don't come through, you make them look bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what you don't want to do. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, I, I get like three or four emails a day from people, a lot of people who listen to this podcast saying, dude, where's that damn book? You know, <laughs> like, okay, I really appreciate people are, are eager to read it. I, I promise well, after I'll write my first it soon. Book, right. uh, after a few, a few weeks, some people, hey, where's the next one? I, and you are exhausted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you don't you even, even think even about it. You to write an email. It's like, where's your next one? I don't know if I will ever have it. Yeah. Yeah, it's like saying to a woman who's just had a baby, like, hey, hey, you know, when's the next baby coming? Like, hey, let me rest. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The other question you get from people is, well, how long did it take to write? Well, what does that even mean, right? Because you think about things a long time, and you do a lot of research in nonfiction anyway, a long time before you ever sit down to write. And then you do sit down to write, and then you're writing, and you come to something that's like, oh, wow, I didn't think about that. That's a really interesting angle. Now i got to stop, take three weeks, and go research that, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In in, in my case, in this book about sexuality, I've been to many labs and everything, but I've also been in BDSM clubs, in swinging clubs. I was interviewing porn actors, always to try to mix science and real life. And I was thinking sometimes, so this is, does this count as a writing, what I'm doing in this BDSM club? It's part of the book You're going to write it off on your taxes. <laughs> Damn right it counts as research, yeah. Well, <laughs> I don't know about writing, but research for sure. It's like, this is a search for my book. So I was there in uh, some BDSM clubs showing some stuff. It's like, huh, I'm working on my book now or what? <laughs> yeah, so your research method is very immersive. It's very, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, you yeah. mentioned Mary Roach. Have you ever met her? Uh, no, not in person. No, no, no. Yeah, she's, she's really cool. Yeah, she's, I've she's done fun. something quite similar. Uh, yeah. Maybe with a bit deeper in the science, maybe. I'm, yeah. I love that, that book. Eh? But maybe it's a bit deeper. Than my, maybe it's too deeper, <laughs> too deep in some <laughs> sense. But, but yeah, it's kind of similar. Yeah. And, but also not going only to the to the researchers, but also to the Tantra workshops, uh, BDSM. It's very interesting, the BDSM relation with pain and pleasure, the nervous system, the endorphins that you are constantly, when you're feeling pain, your body wants to keep the normal state, so you segregate endorphins. So if it's a constant pain that you try to control it, you accumulate a lot of endorphins. And then there are other... Uh, stories and the the tantra again all the hyperventilation is a sympathetic nervous system activation how uh, there are researchers like Lori Broto at Canada that are using yoga I've met her you, you met Lori Broto yeah, yeah I yeah. met her also in Vancouver yeah. and, and, and she's doing this very cool research on asexuality but also with using yoga techniques for women that have had these isectomies and problems Oh, yeah, her lab is doing. I, I was invited to a party uh, at her house where, where her, everyone from her lab was there. It was uh-huh. a, like a summer barbecue, 
Uh, so I met all the the people doing research in her lab, yeah. and it's a great lab. Really interesting people. What do you think about? The, I'm now asking now the the sex researchers because I've been in some conferences in the International Society of Sexual Medicine conference, in the Academy of Sex Research conference, in one in Chicago, the other in Portugal, the European Sexology meeting. And I thought, wow, that's going to be a big party at nights. And no, man, they are like scientists, normal scientists. I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> do you think? So? Well, yeah, I mean, I. I, honestly, I have found, uh, I mean, like you, I've, I've found myself in a lot of sexual subcultures, BDSM yeah. clubs and swingers clubs and, you know, nudist colonies and polyamory conferences and, you know, the whole thing. And, and I think uh, something, the great insight for me in, in pretty much all these, these areas is how, um, how can I say this? How... It's not really about eroticism. It's about community. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, people who have never been in these areas... Now, I'm talking less about science now and more about yeah. the subcultures you mentioned. Uh, people who have never been there, including myself, before I'd gone, have, I, I think, an image of what goes on that's just like some sort of Roman orgy. It's just this, like you know, porn, vi even porn sets. I've been on porn sets. It, it's, it's friendly yeah. more than it is erotic. Hmm. Um, and porn sets, because how erotic can you get with, you know, 14 guys standing around with microphones and, and lights and reflectors and, you know, cameras and no, stop, you know, move your leg and lift this and do that. But uh, even in, in BDSM clubs, it's very friendly. Yes. And... People are very careful about not um, going through anyone's boundaries and, and asking for permission for everything. It's all very uh, uh, civilized in, in a Absolutely. way that people, I think, don't understand from outside. You mentioned, uh, yeah. sorry to interrupt, I don't want to forget this because it's, it's very illustrative of what I'm talking about. I met a woman a few years ago who has, um, I, I don't want to give any identifying details because this is very personal, but she has a, a chronic condition uh, that, in, that requires, that has required four or five surgeries already, major, major surgeries where she huh. could have died in any one of them. Um, and uh, she's in chronic pain. And because of this condition that struck her in her teenage years, and she's in her late 20s now, I think. And uh, she became interested in BDSM because the pain helps her. She eroticizes her pain. Yeah. And it, it literally allows her to survive. Hmm. And so, like, her, her BDSM is so touching. And so, I mean, to me anyway, it's, it has nothing really to do with eroticism. It's about her trying to survive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a very, and I think she's not the only one who is into that scene because they have found relief, strangely, from their pain by ritualizing it somehow. Yeah. I've interviewed this guy from Australia by phone who's studying the people who self-injured. Right, like self, cutters. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. So self-injured to relieve other pains. It's the concept of one pain relieves other pains. Right. And physiologically, sometimes it's like itching. Huh? But it, uh, psychologically, it, it is... And I ask him, 
if in BDSM could be, and it's not that everybody at BDSM is this, is this way, not, not yeah. at all. There's people that simply like that and right. enjoy indifference their role, and, and it's not pain-related, submission, domination. But clearly there are some times that this pain relieves other pains effect physiologically and psychologically yeah, right? yeah, a lot both. of people are into the domination and so on they're enacting and i don't want to get too freudian here but they're they're enacting situations from their childhood that you know mm. they're they're trying to work stuff out and yeah. yeah which you know which gets back to my original point that from people from outside look at this and they say oh it must be so sexy and erotic but then you get there and it's like wow it's it's this is all very therapeutic, very clean, very respectful. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's it's no, because also because of the media, the way that sexuality is exposed in the media generally is going to the extremes. Right. So it's like the big dominatrix that is super sex. In the first BDSM club that I went, sex was forbidden. No, yeah, well, most people, of them. It's yeah, that people, way. Yeah, people yeah. couldn't have sex, and I thought, well, but. Uh, what happens if someone is excited? It's like, well, maybe they go. But many people that come here is not because of the sex. Right? Yeah. It's because of the play, the role play, the, the community. And, and, yeah. and again, the community, it's so strong. We met before going there all as a group. And people were introducing themselves, these roundabouts. It's like, hey, how how are you? Yeah, and... And people taking care, you said, taking care of, yeah, are you feeling comfortable? What do you think? It's not so, as it's portrayed normally in the media. Even prostitutes, well, you know, I'm sure you've interviewed prostitutes, yeah. a lot of them will say the same thing. Most of the clients are not really here for sexuality. You know, they're not here for yeah. sexual release. They're here to be touched. Yeah. They're here to be held. They're here to have someone they can be honest with, right? Yeah. Because they can't be honest with the, the partner. Uh, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, they can talk about what really turns them on. Whereas maybe with their yeah. husband or wife, well, wife, I guess in this case, since we're talking about prostitutes. Um, but you know, there, there are, I was talking to someone who worked in, in Japan in, a, an American bar uh-huh. and his job was to be the American guy who sits in the bar so the Japanese housewives can come in and hang out with an American guy. Ah, yes? And that's his job, be an American. Oh, wow, how fun. Yeah, I always thought that would be a great job to just be like, you know, pay me to be an American guy. Be, like, yeah, I can do yeah, that. Cool guy from Barcelona. You could be a Spanish, <laughs> I don't know if there are any Spanish bars or Catalan bars you could, you could yeah. work at, but yeah, have you studied Japanese sexuality no, at all? No, 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 no. That to no, me I, is very, very interesting. I'm, I'm sure, but no, I haven't included it in my book. But it must be. There, I mean, it's almost like the the application of shame is sort of random. I mean, from a Western perspective, it appears to be random because, like, it's a very J- Japanese culture has a lot of shame in it, huh. but just not in the places you'd expect it. You know, like for example, um, Japanese. Porn can never show an erect penis. Ah, so that's wow. why it's always blurred out. If you look at Japanese porn, the, ah. the point of contact between the genitalia is always blurred. Japanese dildos and vibrators cannot be shaped like a penis. That's why Japanese vibrators are all like, you know, a, a, a dog on a sailboat or a duck or, you know, they're all, they all have these cute, ridiculous cartoon shapes and all that. But 
they've got a huge penis festival in some town in Japan every year where they parade through the streets with these giant penises and they sell penis popsicles and you see little girls walking around sucking these penis popsicles and like there's this huge celebration of the penis. So not in porn and not in dildos and sex toys, but in the festival, no problem at all. Oh, you know, porn. I mean, these guys, porn comics and hardcore porn people on the metro reading it. No, you know, looking at the pictures. Absolutely no shame at all associated with that. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, really weird stuff. I mean, a girl, weird. I don't mean that in a judgmental way. Obviously, I'm talking, yeah. you know, in a colloquial sense of weird. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a Japanese uh, girl selling used panties to businessmen, you know, they're <laughs> sniffing the panties. I mean, they sell them in vending machines in the metro stage. It's just the craziest stuff. And I, I've got a couple of friends who, like this American guy who was the American in the bar, he had a, a Japanese, he had, was married to a Japanese woman. I remember we met them in San Francisco. I was living with my, my uh, Catalana girlfriend, uh-huh. uh, Andorana, super Catalana. And, uh, and we met this couple and they were really cool. She's Japanese. He was American. And they came over for dinner one night and, and I asked, how, how did you guys meet? And the story was... That he was seeing a Japanese woman, but just sex. They were sexual Hmm. friends, which apparently in Japanese society is completely cool, no problem. So he's seeing her, and he was at her apartment. They were having sex in the living room when the door suddenly opened, and her roommate came in, who was supposed to be out of town for the weekend, and her trip got canceled or something. So the roommate walks in, sees them on the sofa, screwing right completely in the act smiles says hello says i'm gonna make some tea do you guys want some tea and and the other woman was like no no, maybe later okay (laughs) fine and she goes to the kitchen and makes tea and goes off to her room and you know that the the roommate's the girl he married oh wow (laughs) so so when they met he had his cock in another woman oh How, how, lovely, how romantic. A lovely, romantic story. <laughs> so he's telling me the story, and she's laughing, and it's just, like, cute and funny. And, you know, like, wow, I got to get some. I got to yeah. get to Japan. Yeah, I was thinking about that. <laughs> Next trip. Yeah, but, I mean, just as a I, – I told you I may be doing this TV show that's yeah. – uh, and I really want to do an episode on Japan. Oh, of course. You know, go to the Penis Festival and, and check out all this kind of crazy stuff going on over there. And apparently there's also, like, Japanese entire uh, chartered flights full of Japanese women going to Thailand for sex trips. Oh. I remember hearing about that when I was in Thailand a few years ago. So it works both wow. ways. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Anyway, okay, we're, we got sidetracked on Japanese. <laughs> I see that you are interested in Japanese culture. <laughs> well, I'm interested in in any. Uh, I'm interested in culture in general, you know, as you know. But uh, I'm very interested in how these things that we are so quick to assume are universal okay. are actually very culturally determined. Things like sexuality, Attraction. diet. 
Attraction. Attraction. Yeah. Although, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about the data showing? You know, the 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 proportions that are universal, like men are attracted to women with the, you know the I don't remember. Oh, what no, no, the, no. Well, there is uh, there facial is this, structure and all. Yeah, that. yeah. There is these these. I've interviewed two guys. One is uh, to the from the UK. Both. Um, one wrote that book called In Your Face. Another uh, I don't remember. Which his is name. about Bukaki. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's on your face. Sorry. Uh, sorry. On your face. Yeah. On your face. Sorry. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah this my, my no, but the 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 one did this study with uh, body fat indexes yeah. and attraction in yeah. twenty different cultures is the biggest study and showing that there. Are they're, in, in beauty, they are universals, of course. Symmetry and, uh, and the, um, health. health. Just signs of health, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah, youth. Yeah. And, and, and their yeah. reproduction, because the more feminine or more masculine. There are a few universals, but then it depends from the culture, of course, that you are, and also from your physiological state. Especially with women, whether yeah. they're ovulating, not ovulating. Exactly. Yeah. But, but he did this very cool study with the students. It was one of these studies with students, but uh, telling them, okay, come to your lab, to, to my lab tomorrow without in eating, eating anything in 24 hours. And the, another group, come to my lab, eat, uh, being full, having eaten a lot. And they, he showed them different women with different body shapes, the same for the both groups. And the guys who were really hungry preferred women that were a bit chubbier. Really? They're going to eat them? No, no <laughs> but, but maybe it's because the, the, yeah. the, the reference, no? But the idea of our physiological state of that moment influence yeah. also that's what in that moment we, we like it more. Yeah. Uh, that's very, very interesting. That because is. in fact... Think about, I mean, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, think about just stress levels. I mean, exactly. I'm sure that, exactly. you know, if you're in a war, you know, you're in, uh, you're, you're hungry, you're, you're whatever. I mean, the the weather's been really bad. You know, there are all sorts of mm-hmm. environmental factors that could affect your attraction. That's very yeah. interesting. And he was saying even in the same society, is uh, the lower levels of of so of income and social status. Mm, no, well, no, the higher levels is the are the ones that prefer very thin. People that sometimes they look even even sick. anorexic yeah. uh, because it's like more sophisticated or more artistic. But the people that are struggling somehow they want health. They want really. They want someone who can make it through a drought yeah, yeah. or so yeah, famine. I don't remember very well now. It's it's in the book. But there is all these several conditions to our perception of beauty, no? Not only the universes that come from our ancestors and the right. basic stuff. There are other ones. And now, what do you think about talking about this issue of how sexuality can change in different cultures? Have you looked at the question of, of um, the difficulty of reaching orgasm for women in different cultures? Uh, yeah, a bit. Not a lot. Biren uh, Sawami was the, the name of the guy who... Uh, the, the sexual dysfunction indexes in, the, in Asia are more prevalent no? than in other places. Hmm. The, reaching in the difficulty for reaching orgasm yeah, yeah, yeah. is more prevalent in Asia. In, in, in Southeast Asia, Asia, I think. Huh. Uh, yeah, I would say it would be highest in the United States and uh, in England. They're not orgasmia. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Um, 
All right. When I was working on that part of Sex at Dawn, I said to Casilda, you know, I read somewhere like 40% of American women report uh, that they uh, never or rarely reach orgasm during yeah. intercourse. And I, and I feel that this is something, a yet another thing that American scientists universalize because they, they study American women, yeah. mostly undergraduate women, you know, because yeah. that's... Uh, mostly white, mostly upper class because they're in college, right? And they say, oh, 40% of these 22-year-olds report um, never or rarely. So, therefore, women, 40% of women, you know, never or rarely. And I said to Cassie, who who was born and raised in Africa, I say, what do you think? What's the rate? How many, what percentage of women in Mozambique rarely or never reach orgasm from intercourse? And she laughed and she was like, I don't know, one, two percent, something like that. Now, oh, she wow. studied sexuality for, with the World Health Organization. So it's not just a, you know, she's studied this stuff. And uh, and I, I've talked to a friend of mine, a Brazilian woman who's a doctor. I said, what do you, what do you think of Brazil? She's like, well, very rare. I mean, most women do. <laughs> so now this could be related to male physiology. You know, there's a. Huh. demonstrable difference between the average African penis and the average Southeast Asian penis. Mm-hmm. It could be related to, I think it's, it could be related to technique and, you know, positions and, you know, whatever. Uh, but I think it's primarily related with shame. Yeah. A, a sexual guilt and all this stuff. The, it's sort of what we were talking about earlier, yeah. a blockage yeah. between the genitalia and the brain. Mm-hmm. Not in this case a traumatic blockage, but a, a, a or a physiologically traumatic block, but a block, a psychological blockage. Yeah, and also the, the sexual machism of the men thinking about stimulating right. properly the woman or yeah. not. Yeah, like, my, no, my I mean, dick doesn't do it for you, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah right. I don't right. need to care about if you're ready or not, or if you yeah. only want me to caress this or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I've got this idea that that uh, people have sort of like uh, horoscopes that people have sexual identity, sexual narrative. Like you know, it's it's sort of explicit with people who are into BDSM or whatever. They yeah. they's like, okay, I am into being dominated by a woman wearing black latex. You know, they, they've got it really clear. I think all of us have some sort of narrative, hmm. and. I think a big part of sexual compatibility is if those two narratives fit together. Exactly. Now, yeah. And I don't think we talk about that very much. Hmm. You know, I think, I think people just sort of are left to figure it out on their own, generally after they've been married for a couple of years and they're already stuck, you know? Yeah, yeah sometimes people refer to the chemistry. Ah, I have chemistry with this person. But... It's expressed it if it was something random or in or, or physiological when probably is something more uh, narratively. Uh, uh, yeah, said, I no? think I think there's the narrative aspect. I think there is a, a, a chemical 
aspect in the sense that, especially for women, the way men smell is so important, mm. as I'm sure you've come across yeah, 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 in your yeah. research. So I think that is there, you know, the immune systems being compatible exactly. and all that. But, uh, yeah, beyond that, on a more mental, uh, psychological level, yeah, I do think there's... Yeah. You know, like maybe what it turns you on to do doesn't ter- turn her on to have done yeah. to her, you and, know? And I've also interviewed this, this researcher from Spain that's doing a very cool research on sexual fantasies. Mm. How diverse are, especially with women again, but how diverse are sexual fantasies? And I can, can connect it a bit with fetishism. Fetishism is very interesting also. Have you read, do you know Jesse Baring? Have you ever interviewed him? He just mm. published a book called Perv. His previous ah. book is Why is the Penis Shaped Like That? Uh, yeah, No, I haven't read it yet, but, but yeah, yeah, it's on the list. But yeah. no, fetishism is very interesting because at the end, there are more accepted fetishists and fetishisms and not accepted, but at the end, we are all fetish in somehow. For yeah. example, I, I like to bite. For example, myself, I, I didn't know until someone said, hey, What's that? I say, everybody does it. No, no, no. <laughs> Not everybody does it. I was like, ah, oh, that was my fetish. Oh, really? Uh, uh, but I didn't know that that uh, was a fetish because it felt so normal to me. Uh-huh. Like many other people. Yeah, that's a good have point. This, yeah. uh, it's like an accent. You know, you never hear your own. It's like everybody else has an accent, exactly. not me. And if we go back to some decades ago, that's what Kinsey did this great job showing, hey, what's what's going on there no? in, in sexuality and of course there are the sexual behaviors that are more uh, prevalent and others less and the ones that are less prevalent we call them fetishisms but the fact that everyone there is something that turns on that person more than the rest is a fetishism and some are them socially constructed this fetishism of huge breasts mm. we don't call it a fetishism but it would have been a fetishism 200 years ago because there were no those. If someone, if there was some woman with those breasts, it was like, oh, you know, what's going on wrong with, with this person, no? Um, but, but that's it. It's Talking about fetishism, I, I don't know if it's Laurie Bracco or, or someone else. I, a Canadian researcher published a paper recently arguing that pedophilia is essentially. Uh, what was the argument that that pedophilia is a fetish in the sense that it is uncontrollable the the desire is yeah, uncontrollable desire, yeah. right and um and his argument was that it should be completely decriminalized because what we're doing by by criminalizing it is making it impossible for those people to accept the reality of their desire and therefore gain better control over it because as you said in your presentation the other day when we Hmm. try not to think about something we're giving it power and it it takes up more of our mental space and more you know more of our our uh i mean i i've made the mistake of referring to child abuse as pedophilia and someone wrote to me and said hey be careful pedophilia is about what you feel exactly it's It's not not about what you do and that's what i was the point i was gonna make you you can accept pedophilia as a way hey look everybody's different and for any reason you have this desire but you can't control it normally there are people that can control it and there are researchers doing research comparing brains and attitudes and the past of people that are pedophilics that they are a lot and people that are pederasts 
right. that they commune, right. that's that, that the, they do, and that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference, but it's a difference that is is not generally made, and it's certainly not exactly. made in the legal community because you know who Dan Savage is. Yeah, yeah. Right. So someone wrote to Dan Savage and said, you know, I'm. I'm a pedophile. I'm very attracted to, you know, six-year-old children or whatever. And, uh, but I know it's wrong. And I would never I know it's terrible. I I, yeah, but, but I need help. I, I, I need someone to help me. I need someone I can talk to about this. I, can't, I don't want to talk to my wife about it because she'll leave me. We've got our own kids. She, uh. She'd never let me see my kids again. I need a therapist. But by law in the United States, if you tell a therapist you're attracted to kids, she has to call the police. She has to turn you in. Yeah. And it's, it's like, well, what the hell is that? So Dan was looking for organizations that could help this guy. And he found, like, there are no organizations no, no, in the it's U.S. It's a taboo. It's a huge taboo. In, the, in Canada, there are. In Canada, yeah. there are places, therapy organizations you can go to, and you're, you're not mm-hmm. going to be turned in. But think about how crazy it is that you go to a therapist. You say, I've never touched a kid inappropriately. I've, you know, I, I would never do this. I just need you to help me, support me, work through this, understand why this, why I feel this way, as a way to help me not commit this crime, and that you'll be turned in for that. That's a thought wow. crime, yeah. Right. That's that's what we we say the communists did and the Nazis did, and you know we're in the land of the free. Did you hear about this guy who? He was on, I think he, I don't remember what his previous case was, but he was on parole, I think. And he was keeping a journal where he wrote about his attraction to kids. And his mother found the journal and called, read it and called the police. And they put him back in jail. Oh. But he didn't touch anyone. He didn't hurt anyone. He just wrote his private thoughts in a book that someone else found. No, the, the, the researcher from Germany that I interviewed, I met him in the, in the International Academy of Sex Research meeting, who's is the biggest study in pedophilia and pederastia ever done with 250 people with different subgroups doing all kinds of stuff. He's, he said, hey, what we are seeing is that there are plenty of people that have this attraction to young kids and but most of them know that it's wrong and they would never end up doing something bad for them right um unless we marginalize them so much that they become so of course they, they need to be careful of being in these environments with kids and not getting drunk in, in right. difficult, so right. they need to take care of things like that because you, at the end desire is in the limbic system and control is in the right. frontal cortex and everything that shuts down the frontal cortex leaves the limbic system right. ready to do so but I mean you're into biting right but you never walk down the street and bite somebody no right no, not normally no <laughs> <laughs> no no I'm not I mean I, when I say I'm not well yes I'm into biting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm getting nervous. I'll, I'll just move over here a little bit. Yeah, uh, cool. All right, now yeah. let me just pause this. Okay, listen. Uh, your ride to the airport is about to leave any minute. Exactly. We could talk for hours and hours. I hope we'll get a chance to do it again. Uh, uh, before I, I say goodbye, where can people find your work? You have a website. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My name, <laughs> my name, Perestupina. dot com. Uh, that'll also, I'll put a link on on my webpage uh, so people Twitter, find that there. Facebook, but the, the the name of the book is very easy to remember. It's like like e equal equal m s c square of Einstein. Is S equal E X squared. So S equals E X squared. Yeah, and easy. that's in Spanish and it's coming soon in English. I hope so. 
And I don't know it's so soon, but how so? But through that, it's very easy to find my name and everything. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot for hey, doing this. Lot, Have a good trip. <laughs> Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.